You are listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more content and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Well, good morning again. I'm going to be with you. I had a bit of a scare as I was preparing yesterday for today's message. During the holidays, I had a few extra messages to prepare, and so I tried to get all of these done ahead of time. And so the one for today, I had written like weeks ago. And so I pulled it out yesterday. I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just do a brief run-through to make sure everything is there. <clears throat> and I pulled it out, and now everything was going well until I got about two-thirds of the way down, and I realized I haven't finished this thing. So, you are going to get a completed sermon this morning, but I'm glad I I checked it out yesterday rather than today. It would have been a little bit interesting. So, our text for this morning is Psalm 121. Psalm 121, and I'll be reading out of the NIV today. So, let's rise this morning for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 121. A song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these wonderful words. Thank you for the Psalms, God, and and the way that they mold us and shape us. And give us a new vocabulary for how to pray to you. God, I pray that you would speak to each person who is here this morning. God, you know in which condition you find each of us. You know which of us are joyful and and excited for this new year. God, you know those of us who are in pain. You know those of us who who are grieving. And we're all somewhere on that spectrum, God. But we all need the same thing, and that is Jesus Christ. So may we receive that this morning. And God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Author and pastor Eugene Peterson says this, quote, the Christian life is not a quiet escape to a garden where we can walk and talk uninterruptedly with our Lord. Not a fantasy trip to a heavenly city where we can compare our blue ribbons and gold medals with others who have made it to the winner's circle. The Christian life is going to God. In going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on, breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop the same stores, read the same newspapers, are citizens under the same government, 
pay the same prices for groceries and gasoline, fear the same dangers, are subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, and are buried in the same ground. The difference is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know we are accompanied by God. We know we are ruled by God. And therefore, no matter what doubts we endure or what accidents we experience, the Lord will preserve us from evil. He will keep our life. The Christian life is a pilgrimage. That's what he's saying. Our lives as believers are not static, but dynamic. We are always moving from one point to another. And like any journey, there is a starting point. There are landmarks, checkpoints, and milestones along the way, and there is a destination. Perhaps no book in history describes this better than Pilgrim's Progress, the classic work by John Bunyan. The story is told as an allegory in which the main character, Christian, is making his way toward heaven. It opens with this famous line, I saw a man clothed in rags, a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. Christian, and his name, by the way, is chosen to be representative of all Christians as we are all on a journey. He faces many dangers along his pilgrimage. The city of destruction, the slew of despond, the hill of difficulty, the valley of humiliation and vanity fair, and eventually he must cross the icy river of death before entering into the celestial city. Christians are pilgrims. But even if you're here as a non-believer, someone who does not follow after Jesus, my hunch is that you can still identify pretty closely with the idea of a pilgrimage. Everyone experiences life as a journey from one place to another, right? We're, we're born and raised somewhere, maybe in multiple places. We grow up, go to college, or get a job. Maybe we move somewhere else or find a new line of work. We get older, we make new friends, we lose old ones. Maybe we start families. So in all of this, there's movement and there's change. Some of it we like and some of it we don't, but... To be human is to be a pilgrim. The idea of a pilgrimage sparks our imaginations and kind of gets our romantic juices flowing. Uh, for our family, we like the idea of a pilgrim so much, we named our dog after it. We have a dog named Pilgrim, which is very fitting since he's a mini Aussie who is always on the move, though I'm pretty sure he has no destination in mind. It's more like he's just kind of wandering back and forth. But a pilgrimage sounds kind of fun, sounds like an adventure, sounds sort of exciting. But as we make our way through Psalm 121 this morning, we quickly discover that this pilgrimage is different. Danger abounds, enemies are everywhere, the path is slippery, the stakes are high, and the psalmist will be lucky to get out with his life. You may recall that this psalm was our scripture memory passage for the fall semester, right? A couple of weeks ago for the 
the Christmas pageant, the kids came up here and they memorized this whole thing. It was pretty amazing because I don't know how many of us adults actually did that. But they recited this Psalm 121 verse by verse. This morning, though, I want to zoom in on the opening line. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Jerusalem is an area surrounded by mountains or, or hills. Those words are kind of used interchangeably to describe the landscape there. And, and as the pilgrims uh, approached the city, they would have raised their eyes to be greeted by these towering heights. So we might think then of the psalmist gazing upon this beautiful scenery and, God, and seeing God's handiwork and power on full display in his creation. In all the years that I've read this psalm, that's kind of what I assumed, is this directing of his eyes toward the mountains is meant to be this source of comfort, right? But here's the thing I discovered as I was researching for today. In biblical times, and probably in certain places, modern-day times, mountains were really, really dangerous places. Thieves used them as a place to hole up and attack travelers. The hills and the mountains, as opposed to the cities and the, the more populated areas, they were very sparsely populated, sometimes no people at all. Remember, these aren't the lush Appalachians or even the, the white-capped Rockies with forests surrounding them. The Holy Land is a desert. So mountains were rough, rugged, and desolate places. As one source explains, they had kind of an alien quality to them, inaccessible and shrouded in mystery. While it's true that sometimes mountains are described as a source of refuge, when God shows up in mountain, on mountaintops, he often does so in ways that are more shocking and awe-inspiring than just sort of comforting and soothing. We might think of the Israelites facing the thunder and lightning of Mount Sinai, or Elijah going up against the prophets of Baal. And then in the Old Testament, the high places were also locations of pagan worship, where Israel faced the temptations of worshiping false gods. So, all of this to say that when the psalmist raises his eyes to the mountains, he sees much to fear. The path is perilous. Danger lurks around every corner. He looks up and he sees these massive sources of, of anxiety. They just fill his field of vision. And danger is everywhere. If you look closely, even the, the forces of nature here seem malevolent. The ground is slippery, verse 3. The sun threatens to harm him, verse 6. The literal word is smite or strike. It's almost as if the sun is this, this boxer who's just beating down upon a weary traveler. And even the moon is after him. In uh, old, old times, Old Testament times, the ancients believed that if you were exposed enough to the moon, you could actually go mad. You would go crazy just from this thing called moon sickness. And so that was their, what there was to fear. And who knows what else hides in the shadows of these mountains. The path of the Christian is perilous. That's what the psalmist is telling us. 
This isn't a stroll in the park or a private chat with God in the garden while the dew is still on the roses. Now the stakes are much higher and there's danger on every side. So this is less like a Hallmark movie and more like Avengers Infinity War. And these perils come from many different sources. Some are more obvious than others. But I wonder, as you reflect on your own life, what perils and hazards and sources of anxiety do you see coming at you? Worry about the future is a big one. None of us has a crystal ball, so none of us knows what's coming next. But that won't stop us from speculating and projecting and conjuring up a million different what-if scenarios and how we might handle each one because we believe that if we can think through each option thoroughly enough, maybe then we can kind of control our futures or at least part of our futures. Maybe physical danger is the monster you're facing right now. Sickness or bad test results or the looming death of a loved one. In a world of uncertainties, death is the one sure thing. It's something none of us will escape. The Apostle Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. You see, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden and broke the world, death entered the picture. We no longer enjoy free access to the tree of life. Instead, our bodies break down. We lose our hair. We move more slowly. We get crow's feet and arthritis. It's not a question of if, but when. Or maybe when you look at the mountains, you see other phantoms coming after you. The haunting ghosts of anxiety or depression that won't let you rest. A history of trauma that emerges at the most inopportune times. Past hurts where the scars just do not seem to fade. And as if all of that is not enough, Satan, our great enemy, assails us. Peter gives us this strong warning in 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, just a brief aside on that verse in particular. Please don't take that to mean that the devil is lurking around every corner and under every stone so that if you drop your guard for a second, he's going to get you. The devil is not omniscient or omnipresent. And let's be honest, we don't need the devil to make us sin. Uh, our own human nature does a pretty good job of that on its own. I don't know about you, but I'm very proficient at sinning. If you are a Christian, though, you have nothing to fear because Satan is a defeated enemy. And Christ's victory over him at the cross and at the empty tomb is your victory, too, and it cannot be undone. Nonetheless, Satan is still actively at work. He's very real, and he causes an immense amount of trouble for pilgrims along the journey. But perhaps the worst enemy of all is the one that so often goes 
unidentified. And it's our own hearts, which are prone to fixate on the dangers around us rather than the God above us, and who has rescued us so many times in the past. The great reformer John Calvin said it like this. He said, even when we have experienced the protection of God, yet we still instantly tremble at the sound of a leaf falling from a tree as if God had quite forgotten us. You see, our erratic, wandering eyes will look everywhere except to God when the mountains loom large. We look to our own strength. I just need to put my head down and and power through these next cancer treatments. We look to our circumstances to change. You know, once this pandemic is over, things will be back to normal and everything will be all right. We look to worldly wisdom. You know, if I just follow this method, I'll conquer all the giants in my life. Or we seek refuge in our pet sins and creature comforts. If I can detox from life with a little bit of online shopping, planning out my next big housing renovation, getting that new side hustle going to earn the extra, in, the extra income I need to be happy, or turning to pornography to help me through this dry patch in our marriage, then, then I'll be good. Then I'll be okay. See, we look everywhere except to God. And the reason for this is, is pretty simple. Our spiritual compasses are broken. Not just damaged, not just needing to be recalibrated by a degree or two. They're shattered and broken. Up is down, left is right. True north might be southeast one day and northwest the next. Our spiritual compasses are unreliable guides. And you can't get very far on a pilgrimage with a broken compass. As wandering pilgrims, we also have wandering pilgrim eyes, frenetically darting here and there, anywhere, fixating on anything except for God. The Apostle Paul diagnoses our condition this way in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds, animals, and reptiles. But there's more to Psalm 121 than all that. God won't let a broken compass slow us down. There's one word that occurs over and over again in this psalm. You may or may not have noticed it because in your English translations, most of the time they use multiple words to translate the same Hebrew word. And that word is shamar. you say that with me? Shamar. Shamar. Most of your Bibles probably translate it as watch over or keep. The psalmist says the Lord shamars us and will not slumber. 
The Lord watches over us and keeps us and will not slumber. He shamars us. And not just individually, but all of God's people. The Lord shamars all of Israel and will neither slumber nor sleep. Unlike humans whose eyelids get heavy and our bodies grow weary, God is ever watchful. He doesn't blink and he doesn't abandon his post for even a moment. His merciful gaze is always fixed upon his people. We are the apple of his eye and nothing escapes his gaze. As we look to the mountains and see the many dangers lurking in the shadows, we never have to fear that they will catch God off guard. He is always for you, not against you. God is never your enemy, and he is always acting as an ever-present guardian on your behalf. The Lord shamars you. The psalmist goes on to say that the sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. Now, you have to remember, these are are pre-modern times, before things like the sun and moon were really scientifically understood. So they were the unknown domain of the heavens, kind of the abode of the gods. So to the ancients, the sun and the moon were these mysterious, fear-inducing forces that they couldn't control and didn't understand, but still held the power of life or death over them, right? Because particularly in an agrarian society like this, too much sun and your crops are going to dry up. Too little sun and they won't grow at all. Too much exposure to the moon, it was believed, and you could literally lose your mind. Now, we may know more about the sun and the moon today, but that doesn't mean there aren't other forces which hold the power of life or death, either physically or existentially, over us. And yet, in the midst of these forces too big and too powerful, God shamars you. God watches over you. He keeps you. And then in the last few phrases of the psalm, this word occurs three times, one clause right after the other And it's almost as if the psalmist is telling us, look, if you're not getting what I'm putting down, here it is again, my last one, two, three punch. The Lord will shamar you from all harm. He will shamar your life. He will shamar, watch over, keep your coming and going both now and forevermore. So now not only does God watch over us right here and now in this moment, But every day of our lives yet to come, whether that's one day or 80 days or 100 years, he holds all of those safely and securely in his nail-scarred hands. And not one of them escapes his grip. When we say God watches over us or, or God keeps us, What we're doing is we're comparing God to a vigilant watchman. In the Old Testament times, most cities were surrounded by a wall, a really thick, a really high wall that was to serve as a defense when enemies would attack, which happened many, many times, very frequently. And on top of this wall stood the watchman. They took different shifts throughout the hours of night and day. 
while the rest of the city slept. They were always alert, always had their weapons and armor in place, ready to sound the alarm if danger should threaten. But the thing that I personally find most comforting about the watchmen is their perspective and what they're able to see. See, a watchman sees things that everyone else can't. They're up higher so that they have a bird's eye view of the entire area. The rest of the town, though, is all at, at ground level. And what's more, they're behind this wall. So their view is, is very limited and very obstructed. You know, an enemy could be 10 feet away from you on the other side of the wall, and you may not know it. But not so the watchman. He sees everything. He can see an enemy army a mile away. Identify bad weather on the horizon and locate predators as they approach. So when we say God shamars, this is the thing we are talking about. He is the all-seeing, all-powerful, salvation-bringing watchman. How do we know this? Because God doesn't just make hollow promises. He doesn't just speak words to us. But instead, he became the word made flesh who dwelt among us, which we've heard over and over again during this Christmas season. God became fully human in the person of Jesus Christ. As the angel said to Joseph, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus saves us from our sins. That's his job. That's his vocation. Some of us are plumbers. Some of us are electricians. Jesus came to save us from our sins. But when we look up to the mountains, what is it we so often see? A whole enemy of, of, army of enemies charging toward us. Our mistakes, our failures, the mistakes and failures of others that, that leave their scars on us. The guilt and shame that clings so tightly and remind us that we are not doing all we should do or, or being all we should be. And what's worse, they're telling us the truth. When we look back on our past, the answer to the question, could I have done more, is always yes. You could have tried harder. You could have been a better father. You could have been more patient. You you could have been more compassionate. You could have reacted less emotionally. You could have made better life decisions. And you should have. See, the army of sin assails our hearts and threatens to overwhelm us and kill us. But in the midst of this assault... We once again hear the cry of the psalmist, but this time 
we hear it in a different way. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So when we raise our eyes to the hills surrounding Jerusalem, now we can fix them on a particular place. One hill specifically, a hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha where Jesus was crucified in your place and mine, shedding his own blood to save us from our sin and to defeat Satan once and for all. So now when we raise our eyes to the mountains, which used to be the source of immense anxiety and fear, now we see the cross. Now we see the cross. And it's only there that we can find peace and comfort. In just a minute, we'll get the chance to come to the Lord's table, where we continue to receive the benefits of the cross. Jesus does this thing, you see, where he gives us himself, not just once, not just one time 2,000 years ago, but again and again and again. Because as long as we are still sinners, we are still going to need a Savior. So if you find that that category applies to you today, if you recognize your own sin and your own desperate need, then you are welcome to the table. In fact, you are who the table is for. Communion isn't an awards banquet for spiritual champions. It's a life-saving meal for the spiritually broken and destitute. The only thing you have to do to be worthy of it is to recognize that you're not. And instead, look to the one who is. As we wrap up, my hope and my prayer for you, dear fellow pilgrim along the journey, is that when you lift up your eyes to the mountains, you would see beyond the dangers and fears assaulting your heart, and that you would fix your eyes on the cross, which is bigger and stronger than all of them. So if you know this verse by heart now, I encourage you to say it with me in closing. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.